Welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. We are a new magazine, website, YouTube channel and podcast dedicated to history and historical fiction. On this podcast, you'll find interviews with best-selling and acclaimed historians and novelists talking about great events and people of history. Head over to our website where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories. And they're all absolutely free. We also have annual subscriptions to our magazine at the shockingly low price of 9.99 in both pounds and dollars, which of course you can gift to friends and family. Anyway, on with the podcast. Please do subscribe if you enjoy it and give us a great rating if you can. Today I'm speaking with Anne O'Brien. Anne is a best-selling writer of novels such as The Queen's Rival and The Royal Game, which is her latest book. Set primarily during the Wars of the Roses, it features three women of the Pastons, a family that had to navigate through the choppy waters of that violent period. We also talk about historical fiction itself. There are some historians who dismiss the genre, but it plays an important part in introducing readers to history, and Anne has some interesting things to say about it. I hope you enjoy the chat. Welcome, Anne O'Brien, to the Aspects of History podcast. Good morning. I'm very pleased to be with you. Uh, now, Anne, you're the, uh, you're the first historical novelist that we've had on. You're a Sunday Times best-selling novelist, uh, and, and I think it's fair to say your area of expertise um, is the Wars of the Roses, so we'll, we'll chat about that, uh, and obviously your new book, The Royal Game, and then we're also going to talk a little bit about historical fiction itself. So Anne, um, so first, my first question, Anne, um, your, your new novel, it starts in 1444, during the reign of, of Henry VI, who I think it's fair to say he wasn't the greatest uh, king we've ever had, was he? No, he wasn't. <laughs> definitely not. And, and I think he, he, well, he's, he's definitely overshadowed by the, the three main um, protagonists of your novel, the, the Paston women. So could you tell, tell me a little bit about, about the Pastons and who they were? Yes, the Pastons lived in Norfolk for the most place, uh, based often in Norwich, but with estates around the area. And um, it was a matter of choosing who to write about. We tend to know about the Paston men um, who made something of an impression in legal, in the legal world and at court eventually. Um, but what about the Paston women? And I chose to write about three of them. One of them, the obvious one, is Margaret Paston. Um, she married into the family that she was an heiress and so very valuable as a Paston wife. She came from the Mortby family and brought all their estates with her. Uh, and she was very much a, a dominant figure. Um, she ruled the roost. Um, she kept her husband and her sons and her, um, her servants in order um, because quite often she was left to deal with business while they were doing other uh, male things. Um, and uh, she clung on to this amount of power, if you like, almost until the day she died. She was the obvious one to write about. But as a contrast to her was her sister-in-law, Elizabeth Paston. Now, she was um, a Paston born and bred, and it was her role to marry well, uh, to bring someone with social standing, uh, with money, with estates into the family. And it caused her great grief and, uh, and pain because the men who were interested in um, 
asking for her hand in marriage, didn't live up to her mother's standards. Her mother is Agnes Paston. And Agnes tended to put the blame on Elizabeth um, to the extent that in the end, she uh, kept her uh, under strict uh, um, restrictions at home and she even beat her because of her failure to find a husband. In the end, she was packed off to a, a noble household in London, hoping she would find someone suitable there. It was the Delapole um, family. And fortunately for Elizabeth, she did. And she married well in the end, Sir Robert Paston. But it showed how uh, these women uh, could live very unhappy lives, um, trying to fulfill this need for uh, good um, uh, marriages and suitable husbands. Now, the third one I talked about wasn't a Paston at all. Her name was Anne Hote, uh, and she came from a, um, a Kentish um, family, uh, landed gentry, um, and she hoped to become a Paston. She'd got her eye set on Sir John Paston, who was Margaret's eldest son, and he hopefully wanted to marry her um, at the beginning of their relationship. Her importance was that she was the first cousin to the Queen, Elizabeth Woodville. And if the Pastons wanted a voice at court, what better way than to marry uh, for John, Sir John to marry Anne Hote. It didn't work out quite like that. And the story develops during um, uh, the royal game as to what happens between this very ill-matched couple in the end. Uh, but it gave a different aspect of, of marriage and uh, um, and the Pastons and what they were trying to do. And so those are the three who make up the, the three main individuals and who introduce us to the men of the family uh, by their relationships with the rest of the Paston family. And so that's the royal game. Uh, the men, presumably during this rather turbulent period, uh, um, you know, probably is a bit of a caricature that they... Uh, you know they make they make their time sort of scheming in court, and and obviously things develop further as the Wars of the Roses uh, begin. But but just how dangerous was the court for um for the Pastons and 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 generally just before the Wars of the Roses? Because it starts in 1444, which is just before the Wars of the Roses breaks out. Is that, is that right? Yes, that's right. It was um, surprisingly dangerous. I discovered for a family in this situation because. Um, Having a weak monarch, and in other cases, if it was a, a disrupted line of, of, uh, of monarchy or um, battles or whatever it was, it gave the great magnates great freedom um, to do what they wished to do in local politics. And in Norfolk and Suffolk, the two great magnates were the Duke of Norfolk and the Duke of Suffolk. And they had got their eye trained on any estate that seemed weakly governed or that they could simply snatch up. And there were also chancellor nobles around, like Lord Mullanes, who had got his eye on any estates in this area. And so what happened was that anything that the Pastons inherited or gained or thought they owned uh, came under the eye of uh, these uh, um, magnates who, who would do anything from legal cases to sieges and invasions to get what they wanted. 
And the only way for the Pastons to get out of this situation, because often they didn't have the money to run a very um, efficient legal case through the courts to enforce their rights uh, to uh, uh, an estate or a domain or uh, uh, manor, whatever it was, the only way was for them to find a patron. And unless they had something to offer, getting a, a patron was very difficult for them. They tried various uh, people, sometimes uh, the local bishop, um, sometimes a, a, a noble who might um, fancy his chances of setting himself up against Norfolk and Suffolk, but not very often. Uh, and the king would rather have the support of these nobles than he would the Pastons, who at this point had nothing really to offer him. And so it's a constant battle. Uh, and it causes them much heartache and many uh, disputes in the local courts, uh, which the Pastons often lose. And the big event at the end of uh, uh, the book is when the Duke of Norfolk arrives with his army uh, on the doorstep of Caister Castle, which um, uh, the Pastons have just acquired, and sets himself up for a siege. And they know they can't win it. They do try and they hold out for uh, quite some time. But in the end, at this point, they lose the battle to keep their castle. So yes, there may not be battles nationwide and the Pastons may not be uh, involved in them, except for one, the Battle of Barnet, that they actually fought in. But it's this, um, uh, this local battle of who has the main power and it's not the Paston family. Interesting. So we know, we know about the Pastons from their collection of, of letters. Which I, I suppose are probably you know a really useful resource. They're quite well known, but how useful were they to your novel? And 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 did you look through them in, in great detail? Oh yes, they're, they're tremendous as a resource. Um, over four hundred letters were discovered in the cache. I think four hundred and twenty-one, something like that. And over a hundred of them were written by Margaret. Um, either written personally in her own hand or dictated to uh, uh, someone in her household for her. She read more easily than she wrote. But even so, it gives for the first time perhaps uh, a real insight on how a woman saw the problems within her household. Uh, so yes, they are a great resource. They, they give information on um, the characters of the people in the family on disputes, of course, uh, that's there all the time, whether it's a, a, a family squabble or something in the courts or, you know, what the, the king is doing or whatever. And, and also the day-to-day the -day, um, trivia, if you like, of, of what they need to buy and what Margaret wants being sent from London for her family. And the letters combine all of them uh, together in a wonderful uh, mishmash of, uh, of what they found to be important. So Margaret often writes about uh, this dispute with some local person over the, the cost of, uh, of wood or leather or whatever it is, and ends up, and please would you send me a, a loaf of sugar and um, material to make the boys some hats and things like that. And it's a wonderful um, window to open into the lives of these women. And they really were multitaskers and found no problem in doing it. Uh, and so, yes, I use them a great deal. I didn't actually write the story um, in, in a letter format, which I did with the one about Cecily Neville, um, but I certainly used the, the contents 
uh, and um, um, combine them into the story of what's happening. And of course, what, what other thing uh, Margaret did and, and the other women, uh, they really showed us what their thoughts were about the men in the family. And it wasn't always flattering. Uh, so great stuff. <laughs> That that sounds fantastic. I mean, it's really it's yeah. a really interesting family, and 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 they 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 did rise up the sort of social ranks, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah, and and that now I, I'm interested in that because um, it seems you do read about these accounts in history, but it's difficult to know how how uh, rare this was or or if it was sort of more regular. Was the Paston experience an unusual one? I'm not sure of my answer to that. Usually we get to know the family when they've reached their gentry status and we don't see the climb and the difficulties. Sometimes we do, but not in any great detail. But here the Pastons show us um, all the complications from being uh, absolute peasants, bondsmen. Um, Clement Paston um, owned no land. He, he looked after his animals. He used his mill. What he did manage to achieve was some money to send his son uh, for education. And that's where their first rise to power came from. Um, so that he, uh, William Paston, this is, um, achieved a, a knowledge of the law and managed to wed an heiress as well. Here we see how it works. It may be that it is less rare than we think. It's just that we don't know about it. Um, what we do know is that if men in um, towns um, managed to uh, make money through trade, then for them it was easier, if you like, to gain a knighthood and to gain a place in parliament. Um, and, and, and we see a number of people in Norwich doing that. Um, but we don't see this constant growth and the battle as the past and show us. Difficult to know how often it happened, but here it's, it's a gem of a story. And yes, I think you, you're, well, you've just confirmed to me um, that you have a sequel already written uh, and it's and it's ready to go, is it? It is. Well, um, it is when my uh, well, it's up to the publisher, say I suppose, that yeah. it is, but it's, it's written, yes, before Fantastic. any editing. Well, this is, this is the, the latest in a number of, of novels that you've written with strong women as, as, as main protagonists. Uh, now, obviously, life was very tough for women in, in the Wars of the Roses and, and in the, the, uh, the medieval period. But is that your motivation in, in giving a voice to these women that otherwise would not have had one? Oh, yes, definitely. They, they are so silenced by history. And the further back in medieval history, the more silent they are. And the only comments we get about them is that the, the particular uh, individual is somebody's sister or wife um, or daughter. And the whole of the events, the whole of the event at the time is from the point of view of the male protagonist. And it seems to me that the women must play um, a more important role. There are some, of course, who we know about. I mean, Eleanor of Aquitaine and Joan of Arc and Margaret of Anjou and such, but they're such a small number. Um, but what about the rest of them? I enjoy particularly writing about women of the court and the um, aristocratic, aristocratic families because they are the ones who are um, involved 
in the politics of the day. And that's what appeals to me. Um, actually, the Pastons are a, a different area for me altogether because they're not, they're, they're this middling rank. But um, these important women, surely they had something to say about what went on in their households. I don't believe for a moment that they did nothing but play the lute and sew altar cloths and sit in the solar and gossip. I'm sure they had um, opinions which they made well known to their household, particularly their husbands. And I'm sure that they did more than um, simply say, I think you're right or I think you're wrong in doing this, that they had um, part in, in the, uh, the, the family development. And as you look closely at these women, it's very clear that they did um, and that they did have a role uh, sometimes a sounding board in the family, but sometimes um, far more practically. Uh, and it gives me great pleasure to give them this voice again so that they can talk about what went on and whether they agreed and uh, what their husbands were, sons and whatever were doing. Um, and there is, there is much to be said about them. I love doing it. Uh, and that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years or so. Well, your previous book, The Queen's Rival, um, that also features a strong woman, uh, Cecily Neville. Um, now, why, why did you write about Cecily? It seemed to me that Cecily was overshadowed in the time in which she lived by the other women of the Wars of the Roses, like Margaret Beaufort uh, and uh, Margaret of Anjou. And yet here was Cecily, who lived uh, for so such a long time. She outlived her sons. Uh, she outlived her husband, of course. Um, she had um, an, an incredibly difficult lifetime to, an, to some extent. There was the possibility of great power for her when Richard, Duke of York, uh, made a bid for the, the crown. And it seemed for a time that she might even become Queen of England. But of course, he was killed at the Battle of, of Wakefield um, and uh, her sons then came uh, into power. Um, after that, there was so much pain for her. Um, her reputation came under attack because of the, the scandal of uh, whether her children, particularly Edward IV, whether he was legitimate or not. Um, and uh, losing her children, um, George of Clarence, of course, was um, executed for treason. And she lives through the whole thing uh, and manages to emerge at the other end of it where her granddaughter becomes Queen of England as uh, wife of Henry VII. Uh, what a fascinating woman she was. Um, she lived a very religious life at the end of it uh, and a very strict household where everything was regimented with prayers and um, conversations and all done to um, strict times in the, the day and where they had a, an hour of, of uh, uh, respite from it and could converse and enjoy other things. Um, but it seemed to me that she deserved to be to be written about. And the other thing that really tempted me was that one of the most dramatic incidents in her life uh, took place at Ludlow, which is just 20 minutes up the road from me, um, where at the beginning of, of the story where I started it, she is left uh, to deal with the, uh, uh, the siege of Ludlow and goes out in, so legend says, into the marketplace uh, and um, makes a, a presence there when her husband and sons have fled to Ireland and to, to Europe. And she stands there with her younger children uh, and um, makes a presence felt. 
she's not harmed in any way, but it must have been terrifying for her. And of course, uh, she was um, put under house arrest with her sister as the, the, the wife of a, a traitor. Um, yes, what could be better than writing about that? So that's where Cecily came in. Absolutely. It's, it, it's, it must have been very sad for her anyway, with, with three of her sons dying before, before she yes. did. Uh, yes. Even, even if they did reach the, the, the pinnacle, or two of them did as king. So if you had a favourite character from history, would, would she be her? Would she be your historical hero? Yes. The, the other one I really enjoy is the younger daughter of John of Gaunt, Elizabeth of Lancaster. She, um, I, I came across her because she's buried in a local church here in a wonderful painted tomb. It's called the Princess Tomb. She, was, she had an incredibly scandalous life. She married three times. One of them was um, John Holland, Duke of Exeter, who was um, executed for treason. I mean, they're all, they all married treasonous husbands in the end. He was executed for treason. Her first husband was a child um, whom she got a, an annulment from because she became pregnant with John Holland's illegitimate son. Um, her third husband was uh, John Cornwall, who was a, had a, a much better reputation. Um, but she is, is around in the final years of uh, Richard II and into the reign of uh, Henry IV. Uh, she's his, his sister, of course. Um, and that's another marvellous story to tell, uh, where they, they coped with it all, the dangers, the difficulties, the grief for so many of these women, but also the, the pleasure that they got from it and the, the, vic the victory sometimes of, of what they managed to achieve. Yes, she's another great character. Um, if you want a male character... Um, well, I I'm not demanding one. Anne. <laughs> no, the most interesting one that I've written about, of course, uh, is uh, um, Harry Percy Hotspur. And he came into my story about Elizabeth Mortimer, headstrong, larger-than-life character, um, died in battle at uh, Shrewsbury. What could be better than that? He wasn't a trustworthy character, but uh, very colourful. And I really enjoyed him as a heroic figure with Elizabeth Mortimer. Fantastic. It's such a, a rich period, really. And, and yes. you obviously carry out a, a exhaustive research for your novels. Are, are there any um, historians writing today that, that, that interest you or have inspired you or, or, or from the past? Or, or, uh, or novelists, really? Yeah. It, well, historical fiction, yes. Uh, I mean, back in the day, and how many people would say this, the one who really interested me was uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe, when I read Eagle of the Ninth, how many people read Eagle of the Ninth back in the day with a tremendous story fictionalised of what happened to them when they disappeared into the mists of Scotland? And I thought that was a wonderful thing to do. Um, and then, of course, there was Josephine Tay, who fictionalised uh, uh, Richard III's possible uh, involvement in the deaths of the princes in the tower, uh, done from a, a, a modern... Um, uh, detective and what he discovered. I reread that recently and thought it um, survived the passing of years very well. Of the more modern novelists, um, yes, uh, Dorothy Dunnett, who was a masterclass in combining um, the history, the characters, 
and the dramatic events into something uh, that you have to keep reading. Uh, the Lyman Chronicles, for example. Um, I really admire her skill in that. And of course, very recently, um, uh, Hilary Mantel and her, her uh, ability to bring Thomas Cromwell to, to life. I never liked Thomas Cromwell quite so much as after I'd read Hilary Mantel's trilogy. Um, so yes, there are plenty of, of modern um, characters to, uh, modern novelists to, to give me inspiration. Yeah, that's quite an achievement from Hilary Mantel to make him a, a likeable yes, character. Yes. So you've written uh, many best-selling books now, um, and and you have legions of fans that you, you actually you engage with a lot of your readers on your website. Um, so so do you enjoy interacting with them and 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 talking about your books? Yes, um, and it's always interesting when they say, "I never realised that this." character was involved in that event or I didn't know anything about her and now I find it fascinating and, and that's always very nice or when people say um, I love this and I love to know about the character and I've now gone back and read the history about them which shows the value of you know the fiction that they will it will persuade people to look at history books then there are some interesting ones of course um, when I wrote about uh, Catherine de Valois and she ended the book going into a convent um, with a, a, a disease that would bring the end to her life and the, the child that she may have carried. It's not sure whether she, she did have a child there or not. And I had comments like, um, I really didn't like the end of that book. Um, I wish you'd written something happier. But <laughs> it is very difficult because that's what happens. And if you're going to be true to your historical fiction, then you have to accept the death. And another one, Constance of, uh, of York, who was the heroine in um, Tapestry of Treason. And quite a number said, I really didn't like this woman. She is not a sympathetic character. Well, no, she isn't. And she wasn't sympathetic to write about, but my goodness, she was a, a tremendous um, protagonist to develop as, uh, as somebody, you know, in a novel. And I suppose with people like that, as long as I can try and make readers understand why they did what they did and have compassion with them, then that's the best I can do. But yes, sometimes what I write is not always popular, but then that's history, isn't it? And that's, that's it. <laughs> well, absolutely. And actually, it's interesting you say that because you um, had written a piece for us last year in our first ever issue, actually, uh, in December 2020. And it was very interesting because you were talking about that kind of challenge you've got as a historical fiction author, writing about history, obviously, as fiction. And, and obviously, you've got to be true to the history, but at the same time, you have to make the, the novels engaging. And, and in that piece, you discussed a, some comments that two prominent historians had, had, had given, D David Starkey and Neil Ferguson, who, who, who take rather a negative view of historical fiction, which obviously you and I would, would strongly disagree with. Yeah. And I'm just interested in, 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 in just expanding on that a little bit more, because I mean, Jane's, Jane, there was a BBC interview with Neil Ferguson, with Jane Smiley, who, who, who gave as good as she got, I thought. But yes. um, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of tension between history and historical fiction, historians and, and, and novelists? Yes, it was the whole argument, wasn't it, about making stuff up, as it were. Yes, yeah, <laughs> very true. unfair. Yes. Um, I have two thoughts about this um, that I think go together. I think in a historical novel, 
the events have to be true to what happened. And so if an event is there, it may be that you have to, to omit it from uh, the book that you're writing because the protagonist isn't there to comment on it. I write first person novels. And so, for example, um, a woman writing a first person account is not there in a battle. So you have to omit all the details you know, the nitty gritty detail of it, apart from what she might learn by one means or another. Um, it can be omitted for a reason, but otherwise I think the events have to be there to give a fair comment on what's happening at the time. You may not like the event, you may not like the colour that it puts on the character, but I think it has to be there, even if you then give a commentary from the from the protagonist's point of view as to how they see it. So I'm all for accuracy in that point. I mean, use anachronisms at your peril. I'm not in favor of that at all. And particularly in the thoughts and the philosophy and the, um, the, the strength of, 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 of comment that, that's there. You can't omit the religious side of it uh, or, or the ideas that people had at the time. They have to be there. Uh, after saying that, um, I think these people have to come alive and therefore they need relationships and they need conversations. I love writing conversations. And of course, conversation is fictional because we don't know what they said to each other and we don't know how they reacted to a conversation from someone else. Uh, and, and the more further back into medieval history, the more strongly the conversation becomes fictional. But I think as long as you give um, a true idea of how you see your character and how they would see what's happening around them, then that's okay. Uh, fiction it may be, but is it true to life? Uh, does it um, give us an idea of, of the people and the events? And I can accept that. Um, and so I'm totally against the idea of it simply making stuff up. It's making stuff up with, with a knowledge and a, a strong um, hold onto the events and the, the, the facts and uh, how the character um, develops in the story. I hope that answers the question. No, I think it does. It does very well. I, I mean, you, you've discussed the Paston letters earlier on. Yeah. And that just shows the, the research that you're doing with primary sources. I mean, how, much, how long does it take in, in the writing of, of one of your novels? Because presumably, you know, there's quite a lot of research that goes into it. Yes, um, I start with um, a timeline of my main protagonist it, within the scope of how I see the book. So all the main events that I am aware of at the time and then next to that comes the timeline of, of what the, um, the other characters in the novel are doing. And then a third one is a more general one, is what's happening in the country, in politics, in uh, um, you know, nationally, uh, any major events that not particularly politics, war, whatever, and eventually, hopefully they will all dovetail together. So you get overlapping, an overlapping plan. Sometimes, usually this works, sometimes not altogether, 
because sometimes when I start writing, I realize I need to start earlier in my timeline or sometimes it needs to go on later. Sometimes it needs to start later. It, it all depends. How do I come to that idea? Quite often, I simply write a scene where um, all three are melded together just to give myself an idea of how these people are going to develop in the book. Um, just to, to get a, um, something that makes my, uh, my thoughts tingle, if you like, as to, to how they will react and are they friendly characters? Do they like each other? Do they not? And what effect does um, the outside world have on them? And I might write a full scene like that, that will go somewhere in the book. It may not be at the beginning. And then at that point, I start writing where I think the book will start. My research is ongoing throughout as I deal with it scene by scene. Sometimes this will make me change my mind and I come across something that makes me realise that such and such a character has to be changed earlier on. I don't mind that at all. Um, and so it, it becomes a, a rolling um, writing situation to, to the end. Sometimes I write the end before I get to the end just to see if it works and if I want it to be there. And usually that one is fine. And hopefully by the time I've got from beginning to end, all the bits are there and it fits. It's an interesting way to do it. I end up rewriting sections of it. Um, sometimes I, I, I discover elements of the story of the people that need to be included. Uh, and it's exciting um, because I, even having to rewrite because it gives me a, a, a new aspect on something or somebody. Um, but that's how I do it. Um, and it suits my, it suits me very well. Oh, well, that's uh, interesting stuff. And it obviously works because lots of people buy your books. Um, so I'd encourage them to get the Royal Game if they haven't already. And then we've got the sequel coming. Um, so, Anne, what's next beyond the Pastons? It's because I live in Mortimer country that I am very much tempted to go back to the Mortimers. And um, the and earlier, earlier than the Pastons, going back early 13th century, wherever you go in this part of the world, there's something that was built by the Mortimers or extended by them or improved by them. So one of my local churches was, uh, and another church not far away where a Chantry Chapel was built, uh, and there are remnants to it all. Um, there's Wigmore Castle and Wigmore Abbey and, and Ludlow, of course, which became Mortimer. Uh, and if you go into Wales, uh, Radnor and Usk and um, um, a whole range of places. Um, and so at the moment, it's very much early days, but I'm very, I am tinkering with writing a, an early Mortimer uh, story, whether it's a one book or more. At the moment, it's one, but I'll have to wait and see. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been really great. As I say, The Royal Game, that's out now. Uh, and then you've also written a short story for us in our first um, ever collections of, of short stories that Aspects of History has put together. So I've got more information on that soon. And I and yes. need to let you know about that as well, but coming out soon. Um, thank you. But thank you very much for your time. It's been really interesting. 
And uh, we'll hear from you again soon, I'm sure. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you, Oliver, uh, and particularly about historical fiction and the pastons. And, and the pastons, by the way, the paperback will be out in March. So in if March. people have missed, oh, don't read ebooks or hardback. March will be the paperback. Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll have more on our website about that um, when the time comes. Okay, Anne, thank you. Thank you. Great stuff. Now, as we get closer to Christmas, we have a very interesting podcast in store. I'll be talking to Andrew Downey, the author of Traitor King. We'll be discussing Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson. Edward abdicated from the throne in 1936, and it is a fascinating story of betrayal, selfishness, treason, and Nazis. And it's a tale that had my jaw on the floor whilst reading it. So do join us for that. Now, before I go, I just want to remind you that if you're looking for stocking fillers, you can gift annual subscriptions to friends and family for under £10 or $10. So head over to aspectsofhistory.com. Thank you and good night.